first scripture reading this morning, and that's in the 65th chapter of Isaiah, found on page 654 in the Old Testament, the glorious new creation. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I'm creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit and they shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all of my holy mountain, says the Lord. May God add his bless in this reading and hearing of this word. Thank you.
Thank you, Bell Choir. Congregation probably does not know that they participated in a recording event with the Chicagoland Accordion Academy uh, where they uh, performed background bells for a, a recording that they were making. So I'm sure you'll want to be downloading that recording soon and play it for all your friends. Um, as uh, we were honored with our bell choir quintet to be able to provide that music. Our gospel lesson this morning is from the gospel according to Luke. We've been with Luke for several weeks now. We're now in the 21st chapter, and we're starting in verse 5. When some were speaking about the temple, how it was ordained... Let me start all over again. When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, these days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. The disciples asked him, Teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign that this is about to take place? And Jesus said, Beware that you do not be led astray. For many will come and say, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes in various places, famines and plagues. There'll be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you the words and wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed, even by parents and siblings, by relatives and friends, and they'll put some of you to death. You'll be hated by all because of my name, but not one hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. The Gospel of the Lord. Let us pray. It's easy to presume that we live in the most complicated times ever, and the world is more divided than it ever has been before that the future has never been more uncertain. And then we learn and find out that you have ushered your people through every kind of age, every unfolding of history, and that you promise never to leave or forsake, and so we confess that our anxiety and our fears or in the end, unfounded, because in the end, they're in your hands. To the glory of Christ our Lord. Amen. Our bulletin this morning contains something that it very seldom contains, and it's a QR code. Did you know that QR stands for quick response? Yeah, I thought it was way more complicated than that. It's actually just quick response code. Um, that is something you can put your QR app in your phone against, and it'll immediately light up on the web with our annual pledge form, though this time you can pledge online. It's there because the pastor has, has prepared kind of a boring sermon. 
I did that so that you would use the QR code and pledge for the coming year online because when we get to the offering portion of our service, we're going to be dedicating ourselves in relationship to our commitments for the coming year. And so you can go ahead and file your pledge, and I promise you won't miss much. Uh, if you do, if you become so engaged in trying to figure out how much you want to raise your pledge, that's fine. It'll also be recorded, and you can listen to the website. But you're going to have to do that manually. We do not have a QR code that will take you straight to the sermon. Otherwise, we wouldn't need ushers ever again. Let me begin by saying that in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. We are grateful for that forgiveness because the role of the Word of God is not to come to us to conclude with conviction, but it is the convictions in us that drive us to the Word. And it is God's forgiveness that allows the interpretation of the Word to speak to our hearts. So that's why Presbyterians have their confession early in the service. Baptists have it at the end of the service. We do it at the beginning of the service because we believe our ears cannot even hear clearly until we have had that recognition that it is God who brings us grace, that it is God that helps us listen. And so with listening ears, we come to today's word. And it has to do with anticipation, with what's going to happen. I don't know about you, but I know some of you spent uh, this past week looking at your news feed to finding out who won and who lost to the elections. Some of you were extremely pleased, some of you were extremely disappointed, many of you were indifferent for that third group, good for you. <laughs> because quite frankly, nobody's attentiveness to the news this past week had any impact whatsoever on the outcome. If we worried as much prior to the election as we worry after the election, maybe a few more people would go vote, but that's me, maybe I'm just simplistic. The problem is that we carry in our brains a capacity that is both a blessing and a curse. It's a two-edged ability. On one hand, it can generate the greatest ambitions, the, the power of the possible, the driving force of renovation. On the other hand, that same capacity, that same aptitude has driven the greatest despair, the most violent obsessions, the blueprint of dysthymic dystopia. I spent a long time on that alliteration, dysthymic dystopia. I thought it was really, really good, so I'm going to make you linger over it, not because it has anything to do with the sermon, but I thought dysthymic dystopia is a pretty good alliteration for what I'm trying to say. If you want to know what dysthymic means and it makes you sad, there you go. I speak today of the mind's capacity to predict, to envision the future, to take what is and project what may be to come. This past week I listened intently to a, a podcast regarding the cautionary tale of inventor Thomas Midgley Jr. Do you know the name Thomas Midgley Jr.? Depending upon how you read his biography, he is either one of the most heroic inventors of the 20th century or one of the greatest evil geniuses. In 1911, Midgley graduated with a degree in mechanical engineering from Cornell University and took a position as a research fellow under Charles Kettering at the Dayton Labs for General Motors. 
His first major assignment was to find a solution for engine knocking. I don't know if enough of us are old enough to remember that engines used to knock. You'd get that clack, 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 clack. It was the uncombusted fuel that remained in the chamber of the cylinder. And that uncombusted fuel would burn late against the drawing of the cylinder as it had gotten pushed down for the first gun. And so there'd be little explosions, and it caused greater engine wear, and it was an annoying sound. And his boss, Kettering, said, Midgley, your job is to solve engine knock. Well, Midgley was a diligent young man, and he experimented with several gasoline additives that would increase the octane of the fuel so it would burn more efficiently and more effectively and so it would all combust within the cylinder as opposed to leaving it alone. After working with several different additives to gasoline, he settled on tetraethyl lead. Tetraethyl lead. He thought that it was the best choice not only because it eliminated engine knock, but it also lubricated the piston walls and increased valve life in your engine. Now, there are a number of people saying, he didn't lie, this is really boring. There are other people saying, this is the best sermon he's ever given. He patented the additive. Well, GM patented the additive. And Midgley received the prestigious Nichols Medal from the American Chemical Society in 1922. Young man received a medal. And little note was taken of the fact that right after Midgley received his medal, from the American Chemical Association, he immediately went down to Florida where he spent the next year being treated for lead poisoning. <sighs> the substance was cleverly marketed not as tetraethyl lead, but only by its middle name, ethyl. You know? Do you remember, let's go get ethyl. That was, that was not my great aunt, that was a fuel that had ethyl as an additive, but the ethyl was actually bound with lead. And so the word lead was conveniently dropped for the by the title. As people knew, even in 1922, that lead had a brain-destroying impact when it was consumed. Still, the additive was used in gasoline, almost every gallon consumed in the world up until 1975, when it was no longer possible to uh, ignore the power of all those cars blowing vaporized lead into the air. And so over time, tetraethyl lead was phased out. It is estimated that those of us who grew up in the glory day of leaded gasoline may walk around with three to five points lowered IQ due to the brain damage that we experienced. Yes, Lyle, some even more. <laughs> Global use of lead and gasoline was not uh, completely phased out until the early 2000s. Never mind that the same anti-knock effect, and this is the interesting piece, the same effect could have been achieved through distilled ethyl from grain. In fact, you see gasohol, you see the grain is now the octane additive in your car. That's what the lead used to do, now it can be done. But, as Midgley understood, any farmer could make ethyl alcohol. They could do it with a still in their own backyard. But the lead alcohol could be patented. 
and General Motors could make an incredible amount of money by selling that additive. Midgley wildly proclaimed that he had fixed the engine knock, but in the process he also unleashed one of the most destructive toxic forces in the 20th century. But wait, Mr. Midgley did not sleep. He kept going. The next project he was giving was to find a cheap, stable product that could be used as a refrigerant. Okay? Something that you could compress and release again and again and again, and it would remain stable. <laughs> and he turned his attention to chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs. He patented dichlorodifluoromethane under the name Freon. You know, um, That's a nice catchy name. had nothing to do with the chemical compound. It became all the rage as General Motors was releasing cars with conditioned air. Exactly. Midgley's Freon became wildly popular. It was stable, it was believed to be inert, and that was true at regular atmospheric pressure. But when Freon escapes, it floats up to the, to the stratosphere. And oddly enough, when the atmospheric pressure is not the same, those big, long Freon molecules begin to break apart. And when they break apart, they run into something else that's in the upper stratosphere. It's called ozone. It's made up of O3 molecules, which are also quite stable. They can only exist up in the low atmospheric pressure. And those freon molecules, when they break apart, the carbons would hit the O3 molecules and then create O2 molecules and CO2, which then would get blasted again with other parts. And over time, the ozone layer began to deteriorate and we heard about the hole in the ozone and I'd take off my shoes and look at my socks and there weren't any holes in those ozones it was that layer oddly enough that kept ultraviolet rays from giving us all immediate skin cancer when we go outside now Dow Chemical which now owned the Freon patent was pretty quick to say that this is only theoretical but in the late 1980s, an Antarctic expedition that had been keeping track of the ozone layer for no apparent reason for three decades said, oh, by the way, we've been looking at the ozone and we're discovering that there is less and less and less of it at the poles. And Dow Chemical said, well, we don't know for sure what's causing it. And it took another 10, 15 years until people said, maybe Freon and other CFCs are a problem. They had become not only popular in refrigerants, your refrigerator, your air conditioner, other things that make things cold, but they were also propellants in aerosol cans. Uh, you used to spray CFCs under your arms or into your hair. The Freon didn't do anything to you, but that was escaping and going up into the stratosphere. And so it wasn't until the Montreal Protocol of the mid-1990s that the nations got together and said, maybe this really is a problem and we should figure out how to make it stop. So, one of the most dangerous threats to ecological survival was also the consequence of the creativity of Mr. Midgley. Humanly speaking, our minds are capable of great invention. But that self-same creativity can carry the seeds of magnificent disaster. When the children of Israel had returned to Jerusalem after their Babylonian captivity, the city was not as advertised. 
They had heard stories from their grandparents about how wonderful Jerusalem was, about the opportunities and the markets and the glory of the temple and the grand walls and the ways in which the city functioned. But when they came back, it was not a place full of promise. They found a desolate wasteland of neglected disaster. The temple was in ruins. The walls were burned and battered and gone. One might call it a dysthymic dystopia, but I learned that certain alliterations you don't use twice in a sermon because then people think you're just hot-dogging, so I'll leave it out from here. In any case, they returned, and it was not the glorious land of promise that they learned about all those years in Babylonia. It was a huge disappointment. They were home, but home didn't look all that great. The disciples, too, were asking Jesus when the new kingdom was going to come. When would it be established? When would he usher in that age of justice and joy and jubilation? When could they finally take control and cast out the Romans, the pagans that were their overlords? Both Jesus and Isaiah spoke of a time when wars would cease. Peace would reign. Hope would be fulfilled. Children could have pet pythons and their mothers wouldn't even worry. Lions and lambs could wait patiently in the same buffet line. But in both cases, the prophet and the Messiah had something extremely important to tell us. The world, the one we live in, is full of unforeseen consequences. Midgley did not plan to become the most destructive engineer of the 20th century. No, he was simply tinkering to solve problems. But in solving his problems, he also gained the title giving us a hole in the ozone layer and lead in our bloodstreams. Our imaginations drive us to see a world that is different from the tragic one in which we live. We imagine an end to homelessness and hunger and injustice, and for that we should work. But in this life, there are no quick fixes. There are no shortcuts. There are no answers which do not also generate a host of troublesome questions. We're broken. We're fallen. Our best imaginations can create solutions to things only as we see them, but in every solution are the seeds of unintended outcomes. Both Isaiah and Jesus say, learn to live with reality and quit chasing after false messiahs. You know, the ones who promise cures without consequence, peace without pain, advantage without agitation. They don't exist. And those who follow after the ones that promise the dawning of a new society that will be without problem are not only lying they're setting you up for disappointment we hope but the limitations of our abilities create new problems we're only discouraged when we anticipated otherwise we are now economically in a place that anyone who has passed simple micro economics understands that when you infuse a large amount of cash into a system the inevitable outcome will be inflation on the other hand 
those who are saying that inflation is the big problem, don't want to tell you that the solution is going to carry with it unemployment. The ones who promise one without the other are false messiahs. And the ones who say, vote for us because we will fix everything, are not finishing the sentence by saying, except for the stuff we're going to break while we're fixing it. It is the reformed doctrine, the Calvinistic doctrine of total depravity. I know that sounds like a downer. I find it a blessing. Our best efforts will never achieve achieve perfection. Yet at the same time, God invites us to give it our best shot. In effect, to say, go ahead and make a whole bunch of mistakes because they're yours to make. There are mistakes. But God is still in the process of promising us God's presence, even as we're doing our best. Eventually, leaded gasoline was banned. And our children have the opportunity to be smarter than we are. In 2019... NASA reported that the hole in the ozone was at its smallest size since 1982 and may completely heal within the next 50 years. Pretty amazing. Great minds also came up with great responses and solutions. Just like the children of Israel and the disciples were tempted to ask, when is everything finally going to be great? When is it all going to be perfect? When is it all going to balance out? And Jesus and Isaiah give exactly the same answer. It will happen when the laws of nature are overturned and nothing that you see is the same that it is now. But as for you, they both said, live in the meantime. This is your opportunity, as Jesus said to the disciples, to testify. You and I have the opportunity to proclaim the presence of God in the middle of an imperfect world. And that we will not tinker this world out of its need for God. God's presence is there because we screw things up. And we will never get to the point where we don't need God's presence with us to give us the solace and the forgiveness and the hope to try again tomorrow. A complete dependence on the magnificent creativity of human ingenuity is insufficient if you do not also have in that God's promise to not leave or forsake. Our gospel reading this morning ends with this phrase. Jesus tells his disciples, by your endurance you will gain your souls. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. To put it another way, that little word that is translated souls elsewhere in the Bible is also translated mind. Mind. How do we function in a world where we are constantly finding unintended consequences? How do we know that even our best fixes will create other problems? How do we not just curl into a little ball and whimper over how sad things are? Or decide it's all going to be broken anyway, so why not just live it up? A nihilist or an indulgent is exactly responding to the same forces. We can't fix it, so why bother? Oh, 
But it was Jesus that told his disciples, by your endurance, you will not lose your mind. By your endurance, you'll keep your sanity in the midst of an insane world. Because God is still present in the imperfect. Thanks be to God. Amen. Did you finish filling out the pledge card form? Good, 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 good. You can come back again. Here we go.